Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou dost judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, has blessed us. God has blessed us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. The first missionary endeavor of the Protestants in England was born out of a Puritan hope. You remember who the Puritans were? Between the years roughly 1560 to 1660 in England, pastors and teachers, laymen who longed to purify, that's where the word came from, to purify the Church of England and bring its teachings and its practice into alignment with the reformed teaching they had come to cherish. They had a view of biblical authority and divine sovereignty that produced an undaunted hope in the victory of God over the world. And they were deeply stirred by a passion that God would one day conquer all opposition in all the nations and reign savingly over the peoples. They really believed when they read in Psalm 86, that it would be true. There is none like thee among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like thine. All the nations thou hast made shall come and bow down before thee, O Lord, and they shall glorify thy name. They had this tremendous confidence that the reign of Christ was going to be extended until people from every tongue and tribe and nation would bow and the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And that hope gave birth not only to the modern missionary movement in 1793 with William Carey, but 150 years earlier with the first efforts of Protestant missions in the English speaking world between the years 1627 and 1640, 15,000 people from England emigrated to America. Almost all of them Puritans seeking religious freedom and bringing with them this massive confidence in God that he was going to use them to fulfill the promises of Scripture that one day all the nations, including the nations of America, would bow the knee to God. The uh, seal of the Massachusetts Bay Colony has on it, had on it, an Indian. Coming out of the Indian's mouth were the words, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, why do you suppose they designed a seal like that in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 
the 1730s. It's because their whole theology was that God was reigning. It was no accident that 15,000 of them had been evicted or voluntarily left England and had gone to a place where there were no Christians. It was no accident. God was a missionary God. If they didn't want to go, he would make them go. And they saw themselves as being present in a pagan land, ready to do God's bidding on an errand in the wilderness. One of those hope-filled Puritans was named John Eliot. He came over in 1731. He was 27 years old. The year after he got here, he became the pastor of a tiny little church in Roxbury, Massachusetts, about a mile outside Boston. The church was made up of friends of his who came over a year after he arrived from England. But something happened that caused him to be much more than a pastor. He served the church for 60 years almost, but something vastly more than a pastor he became. According to Cotton Mather, who wrote the, the biography, this uh, an inspirational missionary biography of John Eliot, there were about 20 tribes of Indians living in the three-colony area around Boston. And it's so interesting to read how uh, Cotton Mather uh, verbalizes this state of affairs. He very consciously says there were 20 nations of Indians. And you know why he uses the word nations. Because he's trying to make very plain his missionary conception of the situation on the basis of the word nations in Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And that is the biblical meaning. Nations does not mean Russia, Nigeria, Cameroon, Afghanistan, United States, Colombia. That's not what the Bible means by nations. What the Bible means is 20 Indian nations in Massachusetts. And so there were 20 Indian nations on John Eliot's back doorstep who couldn't speak English and had no access to the gospel and among whom there were no Christians. One mile away, not 10,000 miles away. Well, John Eliot was a Puritan. His heart was exploding with the hope that God would extend his reign around the world. And in his life, unlike many of the other inconsistent Puritans, it bore fruit in a practical outworking. He was more than 40 years old when he began to study Algonquin. Now, this should be an encouragement to many of us in this age range. You think, well, I can't change. I can't do anything different than I'm doing now. Forty-two he was, and he began to study the Algonquin language. And Cotton Mather has some Algonquin words in this biography, which was written 150 years ago. Some of them are 30 letters long. There were no linguistic specialists around like Wycliffe today. Here's a pastor with an ordinary theological training from Cambridge, and he undertakes 
to decipher the Algonquin language. He gets the vocabulary down, he writes the grammar, he gets the syntax, and he translates the whole Bible into Algonquin. It was published in Boston. And then he translates other books like um, Richard Baxter's uh, Call to the Unconverted. And by the time he was 84 years old, and remember, he had been the pastor of this church the whole time. They just had spare preachers around when he went off to the Indians. It's just an incredible story. When he was 84 years old, the place was scattered with Indian churches, many of them staffed by Indian pastors that he had personally trained in his little academy. He wrote in his diary near the end of his life, prayers and pains through faith in Jesus can do anything. Isn't that a great line? Prayers and pains through faith in Jesus can do anything. It's a great story. I recommend that you read it. Cotton Mather wrote the biography. I tell you the story because I want to highlight the utter importance of a strong, deep biblical hope for victory in driving the missionary enterprise. Without hope, it will flounder, it will die. God has promised, God is sovereign. The Puritans believed all the nations shall come and bow down before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. It gripped them. Eventually, it gave birth not only to a few scattered missionary laborers like John Eliot, but a hundred years later, well, more than a hundred years, 1793, it gave birth to the modern missionary movement with William Carey. Because William Carey schooled himself on this Puritan hope. He drank in the writings of Jonathan Edwards and Cotton Mather and all the others. He had read that biography of Eliot. So the people that were in this school, this David Brainerd and William Carey and Adoniram Judson and Alexander Duff and David Livingston, all of these men were Puritans, latter-day Puritans, who drank in the writings of the people from 1560 to 1660. They were filled with a massive confidence in the sovereignty of God, the infallibility of Scripture, and the intention of God to make the world His own for Christ. And I long for us today to recover at Bethlehem this great biblical tradition, not for its own sake, but because I am so deeply convinced that this Puritan hope is the root of radical obedience. It is the root of intense God-centered worship, which we are striving after. And it is the root of a lasting, durable and fruitful missionary movement in our church and beyond our church. That's why it's important, not for its own sake. And our text this morning, Psalm 67, is simply the way you pray if you've got the Puritan hope. Let's read it again. May God be gracious to us. You see, the Puritans were so desperately dependent on grace May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us that Thy way may be known upon the earth, Thy saving power 
among all nations. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the twenty nations of Indians around Boston praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou dost judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all 17,000 unreached peoples praise thee, O God. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, has blessed us. God has blessed us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. That's the way you pray when you are filled with the spirit of John Eliot. I'm going to pass over the main point of this text. The main point of the text is, you can see it in verses 1 and 2, all blessings come to God's people to the end that they might be shared with the world. That's the point of this psalm. You see the logical connection between verse 1 and 2? Be gracious to me. Bless me. Make your face to shine upon me. Why? That the whole world will know what kind of God you are that you might bless them and they might rejoice and praise you. It's a magnificent missionary psalm Smack in the middle of the Old Testament. That's not my point this morning because I think it's going to be Don Richardson's point for two days next weekend. I have two points which I'll put in the form of two questions and we'll take them one at a time. One, what is God's purpose revealed in this prayer? The answer to that question, I think, is this. God's purpose is to be known and praised, and enjoyed, and feared, or reverenced, among all the nations, peoples of the earth. Let's see where I get that. Verse 2, you see his purpose to be known. That thy way may be known upon the earth. Second, his purpose to be praised. You see it in verse 3. Let all the peoples... Praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Again, in verse 5, let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Third, his purpose to be enjoyed among the nations. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Isn't it great to know that the meaning of verses 1 and 2 is not that Israel is simply to become a spectacle of grace for these poor benighted nations to look upon and envy. That's not the point. Because if that's the only point, they wouldn't be rejoicing. And verse 4 says, come on, rejoice with us. And then fourthly, his purpose to be feared in verse 7. Let all the nations, let all the ends of the earth fear him. So now, if this psalmist is inspired of God and praying, therefore, according to the will of God, we may infer from the psalm that it is God's will that he be known, that he be praised, that he be enjoyed, and that he be feared among all the peoples of America and Asia and Latin America and all the other continents of the world. That is God's purpose. That's why the church exists. That's why the world exists. That's why you exist. 
Now, most of you don't know J. Campbell White. Before I tell you who he is, let me quote something that he wrote in 1909. Most men are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Now, I think that is more true today than it was 80 years ago. Most men are not satisfied with the permanent output of their lives. Nothing can wholly satisfy the life of Christ, he says, within his followers, except the adoption of Christ's purpose toward the world he came to redeem. Fame, pleasure, riches are but husks and ashes in contrast with the boundless and abiding joy of working with God for the fulfillment of his eternal plans. The men who are putting everything into Christ's undertaking are getting out of life its sweetest and most priceless rewards. End of quote. I think that's implied in this text. If we are the children of God, it is reasonable to assume that we will not have any deep and abiding satisfaction in this life until our lives are brought into conformity to our Father's purposes. And our Father's purpose is that He be known, praised, enjoyed, and feared among all the peoples. And His purpose is not yet fulfilled until all the peoples are doing that. Now, if I were in your place... The question I would ask me at this point in the message is, are you saying that the only people who can know the deep and abiding satisfaction of being aligned with the purposes of God are missionaries? Is that what you're saying? To answer that question, let me tell you who J. Campbell White was. He was not a missionary. He was a leader of an organization called the Layman's Missionary Movement, which was founded in 1906 by some businessmen in Washington, D.C. You know what's happening in those days? It was the days of the Student Volunteer Movement. You heard of that group, the SVM? Students across this country were being swept up into the missionary movement, sort of the precursor of the Urbana Movement. And the businessmen saw this happening. And one businessman in Washington thought to himself these words. If the layman of North America could see the world as these students are seeing it, they would rise up in their strength and provide all the funds needed for the enterprise. And so a movement was born in Fifth Presbyterian Church, a prayer meeting one afternoon with businessmen gathered to pray about their involvement in the cause. And from the document that I've read, the point of the society was threefold with three words, investigation, agitation, and organization. Here's what it says. The investigation by laymen of missionary conditions, the agitation by laymen for an adequate missionary policy, the organization of laymen to cooperate with the ministers and missionary boards in enlisting the whole church in its supreme work of saving the world. So the answer to your question that I put in your mouth is no. You don't have to be a missionary in order to enjoy the deep and abiding satisfaction of having your life and your labors aligned with the purposes of your Father to fill the earth with the knowledge and the praise and the joy and the fear of His name. But 
It may be that some changes are needed. It won't do just to go on making money, giving a tithe, putting in an hour for worship, playing, uh, feeding your children, going to bed, watching a little TV, around and around and around. That won't do to satisfy. Something else is going to have to happen. What's going to have to happen is that you stop. You take a Bible. And then you take a a notepad. And then you get a pen. And then you go away for three days by yourself. And pray. And think about your life. Your work. And ask, how can... The resources, the skills, the relationships surrounding my life and work strategically be related to God's global purpose to be known and praised and enjoyed and feared among all the peoples. There are answers to those questions. The layman's missionary movement was one of the answers. I've asked myself today, for example, why with hundreds of godly businessmen and women and a church like Bethlehem and hundreds of churches like that across this country, why can't the U.S. Center get eight million dollars to get rid of that debt and be about the business of reaching the 17,000 unreached peoples? Why for 10 years must they struggle with this debt? Where are the geniuses? I mean, us theologians, we don't know how to make any money. We don't know the ins and outs of what it's going to take for the mechanics of these things to to go. There's got to be a movement among the lay people that is God-centered and globally oriented in our day. And maybe it'll start here. I think it's... They've got this new plan out, but I won't, I won't go into that since that's the parenthesis here anyway. Most of you will come back from your three days away with your Bible and your piece of paper and your pen, and you will stay right where you are. Because God has put you there, and you will simply ponder more seriously and relate more integrally what you're doing to God's purpose. But others of you are going to do something different. Many of you are not satisfied with the long-term output of your lives. There's just no way to get around it. Now, this is, this is dangerous here, and I want to be very careful. Every job has its moments of discouragement and its seasons of darkness. And we must be careful that we don't jump to the conclusion that is the word of God to leave your post. It isn't. So let me try to be more precise in giving you what to look for. If your discontentment in these days is... Deep, recurrent, lasting, and is accompanied by an increasing passion for holiness, not fame, 
not money, not a trendy mission movement, but holiness and doing the will of God, then I think you may assume that God has taken the base of your life and is just loosening the roots so that he can pull you out without hurting you and plant you somewhere else. I think it's happening to many people this week. I heard the prayers on Friday night. I've talked with several of you. God is loosening the roots of many of you this week. It's going to be a decisive week in many of your lives as you look back and realize how a decisive work was done by the Holy Spirit in these days. And I simply want to say, may God help you. May God free you. May God give you a vision and may the heart of that vision be the global purpose of God to be known and to be praised and to be enjoyed and to be feared among all the 17,000 unreached people groups of the world. Well, that's my first question and our time is up and I'm just going to rush through this last question as fast as I can. The second question I had was, what does God want to be known as? If he wants to be known around the world, what does he want to be known as? And the text gives four answers very easily, very quickly. Number one, he wants to be known as the only true and living God. Now, it doesn't say that in so many words, and I get it from this thought. Here's a Jewish poet praying that all the peoples in all the nations where there are 10,000 gods will leave their God and start praising his. That is utter audacity. That is utter presumption unless there is one true and living God. If there is one true and living God, the missionary enterprise is not audacity and presumption. It is the humble response of a loving heart. Second, he wants to be known as a God who is just in all his dealings. Verse four, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou dost judge the peoples with equity, rightness. That means that none of the nations need to fear that at the judgment day, they're going to be judged by a separate standard. It's going to be harder for them. Israel will be up here and they'll be down here. No way. God is not partial at the judgment day. There is one standard of judgment, the righteousness of God. And every man and woman will be called to account for owning up in faith to the light that he or she had where they were. Third, God aims to be known as a God of sovereign power. Look at the last part of verse 6. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou dost judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Now, many nations today call themselves sovereign states. God laughs in heaven. Acts 17, 26 he made the nations and determined their allotted periods of time and the boundaries of their habitations. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns Gorbachev wherever he wants him. 
Daniel 2.21, he removes kings and he sets up kings. Daniel 4.35, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing in the Philippines? Shut my mouth. The Lord reigns over the nations. And therefore, the text says, he guides them where he wills. This is what he wants to be made known. The Lord rules. He is sovereign over the world. And the last thing he wants to be known as is gracious. Verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? That that gracious way may be known upon the earth and his salvation among all peoples. God wants to be known as a gracious God, a God who saves the worst of sinners who simply trust his son. He wants to be known as a just and only God, a sovereignly powerful God and a graciously saving God. And if you haven't caught on yet, this is simply a summary of the Puritan hope. There is one true and living God. He is just and holy in all his ways. He is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. And he is gracious and saves sinners through faith in his son. Because he's gracious, he wants to be known among all the nations. And because he is sovereign, he will be known among all the nations. That's the Puritan hope. That's what drove those early missionaries. That's what is going to uproot some of you and plant you in a new place very shortly. That's what keeps me here as the pastor of this church. Every time Missions Week rolls around, I reassess my life in relationship to the purpose of God to be known and praised and to the incredible spiritual darkness and misery among the billions outside the scope of the gospel. And I ask, God, can I stay? When the Lord asks me on the judgment day to give an account of my life and my ministry, will I be able to say, I stayed at Bethlehem, Master, because I discerned and believed with all my heart that that was the place for my little life to be most strategically invested in your purpose to gather the children of God from all the nations. If I can't say yes to that, I'm finished at Bethlehem. That's the hope that will carry us into a great missions movement from this church and many others to the ends of the earth. And I want to close with a quotation from 12 Puritan divines. 1648, they wrote this letter to Parliament because they heard of John Eliot's ministry and knew that Indians were being converted and they wanted to raise support for the work in New England. And they said this, The utmost ends of the earth are designed and promised to be in time the possessions of Christ. The ends of the earth shall see his glory and the kingdoms of the world shall become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. And if the dawn, they mean in New England, if the dawn of the morning be so delightful, what will be the clear day? If some beginnings be so joyful, what will be 
God's whole work when the whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and east and west shall sing together the song of the Lamb. May the Lord do it in our midst and around the world. Let's stand for closing prayer. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we so gladly bow and acknowledge that you are the one and only living and true God and there is no other. That you are a God of justice and unimpeachable righteousness. That you are a God of sovereign power ruling over the affairs of men and nations. And that you, praise your name, are a God of grace towards us sinners. Oh, Lord God, use Bethlehem, use Bethlehem that the prayer of our hearts might be fulfilled. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. And all the children of God at Bethlehem said, Amen.